So I'd like to start off by, um, tonight I'm going to talk about the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path and taking the practice into the world. I'm going to start off with um, two quotes that I really like that I actually read a lot. But the first one is uh, definitely an indigenous little story purported to be a Cherokee medicine person. And I have asked uh, Cherokees about that. I actually have a friend and they said, yeah, yeah, sure, that was us. We said that. (laughs) (laughs) So it starts off, an old Cherokee grandfather is teaching his grandson about life. A fight is going on inside me, he said to the boy. It's a terrible fight and it's always between two wolves. One is evil. He has anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, lies, false pride, and ego. He continued, the other wolf is good. She has wisdom, joy, peace, patience, serenity, determination, humility, kindness, truth and compassion, and faith. And the grandfather said to the grandson, the same fight is going on inside you and inside every other person too. The grandson thought about it for a minute and then asked his grandfather, which wolf will win? The old Cherokee simply replied, the one you feed. And then our old indigenous Thai Forest grandfather has a very similar quote. Ajahn Chah says, this path consists of virtue, concentration, and wisdom, the framework for training the heart. Their true meaning is not to be found in these words, but dwells in the depths of our hearts. However, if the factors of the Eightfold Path are weak and timid, the defilements will possess our minds. If maga, the path, is strong and courageous, it will conquer and destroy the defilements. If it's the defilements that are powerful and brave, while the path is feeble and frail, the defilements conquer our hearts. As Dhamma practice develops in the heart, these two forces have to battle it out at every step of the way. It's like there are two people arguing inside the mind, but it's just the path of Dhamma and the defilement struggling to win domination of the heart. As long as we are able to see clearly, the defilements will be losing ground. But if we are shaky, whenever defilements regroup and regain their strength, the path will be routed as defilements takes its place. The two sides will continue to fight it out until eventually there is a victor and the whole affair is settled. It's pretty much the same story. So in our life, what are we feeding? How are we moving forward when we're not in intensive retreat practice? You know, how can we do that? I think I've talked to so many people who 
you know, see the value of what has been cultivated here and want to continue working on it. So this is what Marian Williamson says. The spiritual path is simply the journey of living our lives. Everyone is on a spiritual path. Most people just don't know it. Yeah, we all are on a path all the time. You know, we have, <clears throat> as Ajahn said, the forces of Maga, the Eightfold Path, and the defilements, and they are battling it out all the time. And the question is, who is winning? So this path metaphor, why is there a path metaphor? So the Buddha says that liberation could be thought of as a long forgotten overgrown city deep in the forest. So what we're doing is we are cutting this pathway, you know, uh, finding our way through this very dense forest to this, um, this city the city of liberation. And what is the dense undergrowth of covering up this place of liberation, this place of uh, well-being that's not dependent on external sources, this internal well-being? They're mental and emotional obstacles that really limit our freedom. And it's a pretty interesting thing that walking this path, this path is all internal, and it requires us to take responsibility for our own thoughts, attitudes, and actions. And we don't often do that. I see that here a lot. <laughs> that, you know, we get triggered and we respond to the external world. Of course we do. I mean, we all live a relative life. And we tend to think that this situation is causing this or that person is doing that. And, um, you know, we blame the external world for what's going on internally. But this path requires us to take responsibility for our own thoughts, attitudes, and actions. Pima Chodron has a really nice saying about that. Who's on your list, she says. Boss, coworker, spouse, roommate, mother, father, child. Who are the people you really dislike and wish would simply go away? Be grateful to them. They're your own special gurus, showing up right on time to keep you honest. It's the troublemakers in your life who cause you to see that you're, you've shut down, that you've armored yourself, that you've hidden your head in the sand. If you didn't get angry at them, if you didn't get fed up with them, you would never be able to cultivate patience. If you didn't envy them, if you weren't jealous of them, you would never think to stretch beyond your mean-spiritedness and try to rejoice in your own good fortune. 
If you never met your match, you might think you were better than everybody else and arrogantly criticize their neurotic behavior rather than doing something about your own. So that is our task to figure out how to walk the path. And as Marianne Williamson says, you know, we're always walking the path, but the question is, which direction are we walking? Right? We're walking towards freedom and, um, and purification and cultivation or we're walking in the opposite direction and watering seeds of things that are never going to make us happy. So the Eightfold Path is um, considered to have three major elements of it. Sila Samadhi Panya. Sila Samadhi Panya. That's Pali for ethical conduct, mental cultivation, and wisdom. And there's so much about this, you know. And the way that I think about it, it's that it's a path of purification and cultivation is another way to think about it. So, Sila Samadhi Panya. It takes us from our present state through a cultivated state into a liberated state. And that's what the path is. And the path is all internal. It's all an internal path. So, um, thinking first of sila, ethical conduct. That is right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And... I think we probably have all heard of right speech, right? There is um, four ways to think about right speech. Don't lie. Don't slander people. Don't speak harshly. And try not to engage in idle chatter. I have a, a nun friend the Venerable Damadina, who lives in Seattle. And I asked her once, why did you become a nun? And she said, I just didn't want people to talk a lot of BS to me. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I don't want to engage in most of the conversation that people have. (laughs) I can understand that. (laughs) One element of right speech that I really love too that is about, um, is actually timeliness of speech. And I think it speaks to um, one of my favorite of the Buddha's teachings about dust in our eyes. You know, we have people in our lives that we're going to go back and we really want to talk about what we've done here and just, you know, touching into a sense of well-being and contentedness that isn't dependent on things outside of our own practice. And people say, yeah, 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 but you know, what movie do you want to go see tomorrow? (laughs) What are we having for dinner? 
And, um, you know, the Buddha would walk 200 miles to give a teaching to a a 16-year-old girl who was ready to see, you know, the truth of the Four Noble Truths um, and just leave hundreds of people who lived right around him because they had too much dust in their eyes. So, so timely speech is knowing when it's an appropriate and um, helpful to say something about the path that we're on and the practices that we're doing and the integrity and values that we are cultivating and when it probably isn't a good time to do that. You know, the Tibetans have this saying that if you think anything that you uh, say about the Dhamma is going to meet with um, a harsh word or some bad thing said about a teacher, you definitely don't want to do that because the karma of speaking ill of a, a Dharma teacher is really bad karma. No, it really is. You want to be careful. That sounds self-serving, but... (laughs) (laughs) I'm very careful of kama, so... So, um, just knowing when, um, you know, speaking about what we're doing here and what you're trying to accomplish in your life is going to be helpful and when when it isn't. So that's right speech. And I think right speech is huge. You know, there are people um, out in our community who have whole practices just around right speech. You can go on a retreat just about right speech and how to cultivate it. It's really huge. And it's so interesting who we tend to not practice right speech with, right? It's the people closest to us. It's like there's a sense of safety there that we just let it fly. This is so important to me that I've actually added, may I have skillful and wholesome speech to my metaphrases. And you can do that. You can just set the intention to be just aware of that as an added little way. And then right action is the next path factor under sila, ethical conduct. And that's just refraining from killing other beings from taking what is not given and from sexual misconduct. And then right livelihood, you know, not dealing in weapons or intoxicants, slavery or human trafficking. I mean, there's so much about this. You can go and see and study what, you know, the sila path factors are. And I think that they're not a little thing because In order to practice those, you have to have a fair amount of mindfulness, you know. And the benefits of, the benefits of uh, sila. I think sila is one of the most beautiful things that you can see in another person. Just the ethics. The suttas say that if you keep the precepts, the five precepts, you will become lovable. That's how it was with my fiance. (laughs) For all of you single people out there, (laughs) you might consider that, you know. 
I don't think that's bad. That's a bad idea. That, you know, one of the most attractive things about people is just how ethical they are. Keeping the, free, the precepts too that you're free from self-blame. They call it the bliss of blamelessness. It's so interesting. Even when there's community hassles or, you know, in your community or your workplace or your family, you know, just to be able to know that you did your best not to contribute to that is not a little thing. And um, many people here on retreat have been experiencing the opposite of that, something called Hiri and Otapa, which is uh, two of the mental factors, of the 52 mental factors that actually don't feel good. They actually have negative or unpleasant feeling tone to them, but they're incredibly wholesome. They're called guardians of the world. And I think the English translation is not very good, but I'll tell you what they're commonly translated as is uh, fear of wrongdoing and shame of wrongdoing. So if anyone has just had some agony over remembering things that you've done in your past that were not very wholesome and that might have caused harm, that is not a bad thing because it waters the seeds of not wanting to do that again. And that is something that we can bring to our lives every single day. You know, just setting a very deep intention not to cause harm. And it comes from, you know, feeling that, uh, just that agony over having caused harm at some times in our life. So how do we bring that to daily life, sila? Right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Actually, who do you think said this? There's another reason why you should love your enemies. And that is because, because hate distorts the personality of the hater. We usually think of what hate does for the individual hated or the individuals hated or the group hated. But it's even more tragic. It is even more ruinous and injurious to the individual who hates. You just begin hating somebody and you will begin to do injurious injurious to the individual who, uh, uh, irritational things, irrational things. You will begin to do irrational things. You can't see straight when you hate. You can't walk straight when you hate. You can't stand upright. Your vision is distorted. There is nothing more tragic than to see an individual whose heart is filled with hate. He comes to the point that he becomes a pathological case. For the person who hates, you can stand up and see a person and that person can be beautiful and you will call them ugly. For the person who hates, the beauty, beautiful becomes ugly and the ugly becomes beautiful. For the person who hates, the good becomes bad and the bad becomes good. For the person who hates, the true becomes false and the false becomes true. That's what hate does. 
you can't see right. The symbol of objectivity is lost. Hate destroys the very structure of the personality of the hater. Martin Luther King said that. The Reverend Martin Luther King. I think he was a Buddhist. (laughs) He said a lot of things out of the Dhammapada about the mind as the forerunner of all things. Yeah. And that's true of another reason to have ethical conduct because, you know, if we are walking around with a lot of greed, hatred, and delusion, and it's a hundred, it's hundreds of manifestations, we can't act correctly because our perception is so distorted, we don't even know what's needed in the moment. We don't even know what is needed in the moment. So that is sila. And then samadhi. The path factors of samadhi. And that's right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And what does that look like in everyday life? What do those path factors look like in everyday life? Right effort, you might know, it's really beautiful. It's about knowing what's in the mind. So these three are all together, really. Knowing what's in the mind, because um, right effort is to let go of um, unwholesome mental states when they're in the mind, greed, hatred, and delusion, and knowing that they're in the mind, to let them go, and to prevent them from arising, to know what actions in the world you can do to prevent greed, hatred, and delusion from arising. And then also, doing things that will be the cause of wholesome mental qualities to arise. You know, wisdom and all of the Brahma Viharas, all of the divine abodes and generosity and discernment and patience. You know, all of the um, paramis, the 10 paramis, the, the 10 wholesome qualities that are the raft that we cross the floods on. You know, those mental qualities are what we take as our defense against the floods of sensuality and of uh, becoming and of wrong view. And then when we have um, the fourth element of right effort is, um, you know, knowing how to maintain wholesome qualities that are in the mind, to work to have them Um, stay in the mind and be, you know, how we, um, the intentions for all of our actions of the world uh, in body, speech, and mind. To have those um, actions be um, driven by the intentions of, you know, wholesome qualities. So that's right effort. And you can see how you need, you absolutely need mindfulness to know that. You actually need mindfulness in the whole, um, for the whole eight, all of the eight path factors. 
So right effort. And then right mindfulness. And that's essentially what we have been practicing here. You know, the four foundations of mindfulness. What can we say about that? Wow. It's such a sacred place. It's a sacred um, and totally wholesome way to engage in the world. So I like to say, and I'm sure I've said it here before, that mindfulness is the data collection system for intuitive awareness. Just seeing clearly what's happening in this heart and mind. And with mindfulness, you know, I've done a fair amount of long retreats and, oh my gosh, have you guys seen what's in here? (laughs) And I know it's not personal to me, just the amount of um, wrong view that just drives my decisions in life and, you know, the choices that I make of who I'm listening to or of how I spend my time or, you know, any actions of body, speech, and mind. If we're not paying attention, they're driven by wrong view because our society, you know, our culture raised us in pretty much wrong view, you know? So for me, mindfulness isn't something that I do when I'm sitting on the cushion or during walking meditation. I don't trust anything that I think. I don't. Have you seen what's going on? (laughs) You know, we have to be on top of it all the time. I have seen so much of the things that, you know, I'm always preaching against. I have seen so much racism and sexism and homophobia and greed and, you know, um, attachment to sense pleasures and, you know just wasting of time and resources right here. So I don't have time to really worry about other people's defilements because (laughs) (laughs) there's so much going on here. And then right concentration. What is that about? And how do we bring that to everyday life? I think any time that we can bring a uh, awareness of maga or sila samadipanya to our everyday life, that that is right concentration uh, in a in a daily perspective. You know, walking the path in the relational and in the um, you know in the world is just remembering that. So sila and samadhi, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And I love it. Those two things lead to panya. But panya, um, which is right view and right intention, are thought to be also the first of the Eightfold Path as well as the product of 
uh, sila and samadhi. It's so interesting. You know, the Buddha 2,600 years ago had, had anticipated um, complexity theory and complex systems theory. You know, just the uh, holographic integration of the path is so interesting and so pretty, pretty, um, it's like physics or something. It's very sophisticated. Sophisticated and also absolutely simple. It's amazing. So right view. So there's two types of right view. There is mundane right view, which is just a belief in kama. Just, um, you know, accepting the understanding that our behaviors, you know, our actions of body, speech, and mind have an impact. They have an impact on our own well-being and the well-being of others. And to just pay attention to that. Karma. And karma is one of those things that the Buddha called an imponderable. So you might think, you know, why is this happening to me now? And the Buddha said, you know, that's not necessarily the right question. The right question is, what's the quality of my mind right now? What is the quality of my mind and heart right now? Because that's the only influence we have over how things are going to unfold in the future. So we might want to figure out, like, why is it, you know, why did I get born a woman? Or why did I get born this or that? And we never know what is our good karma and our bad karma. Have you ever had that experience? That something will happen to you that you think is your bad karma, and like two weeks later you'll think, oh my gosh, that was actually my good karma. Or maybe a year later or two years later, like a divorce or... (laughs) not getting a job that you thought you wanted or getting into the school that you thought you wanted. We never know really what is our good or our bad karma. That, you know, things get offered to us in the moment that we might want to reject or not like, but, you know, opening to suffering, opening to our suffering is actually part of the uh, sublime or um, mundane and super mundane part of right view. And the super man- mundane part of right view, the you know, really special part of right view is understanding the Four Noble Truths and understanding how important it is to know suffering. You know, I've said a couple times, and for me, I keep reminding myself that the Four Noble Truths all have a verb associated with them. You know, and that suffering is to be known. Suffering is to be understood. So we can thank all of these situations in our life that make it pretty evident. And rather than, you know, trying to carpet the world and saying, the world needs to be like this, or my workplace needs to be like that, or my family needs to be like this, or I'm never going to be happy. You know, that's carpeting the world. And with this practice, we're putting on slippers. 
so we can open to all of that craziness. You know, what's happening in the United States right now? What's happening all over the world right now? You know, what's happening to our mother, the earth, right now? If we have to wait for those things to be exactly the way that we want them in order for our happiness, we're in really bad shape. So that is right view. And it said that, you know, we can start with right view too. We can start with just knowing that um, having a more um, deeper understanding of really where happiness is. And, you know, there's a big difference between, um, you know, a Western view of happiness and how a lot of the rest of the world feels about that. A Western view of happiness is um, personal fulfillment for ourselves through, you know, accomplishments or possessions. And a lot of the world doesn't feel that way. They realize uh, in other cultures, particularly where Buddhism comes from, that being able to open to the truth of suffering with resiliency and just to meet that without crumbling and to offer that, to offer bearing witness. Yeah, bearing witness is a huge offering of being able to sit there with, with the suffering of the world, our own, our families, our communities, and just holding that with some wisdom and love and say, yeah, that's the way it is right now. That's the way it is right now. And you can still have a deep sense of well-being even when you're sitting right in the middle of that. And I think that's part of right view, knowing that it's not about, you know, that happiness is actually not what we think it is and not what is being sold to us. You know, holding that very lightly and holding it without a lot of recriminations towards people who still believe that happiness is from accumulation and, uh, you know, personal accomplishment. You know, holding them with some kindness too and just realizing that they're probably never going to you know, know a well-being that isn't connected to that. So, panya, right, right view. Suffering is to be known. So if any of you have suffered here in the past couple of days, congratulations. That's an insight. <laughs> you should feel good about yourself. Yes. Dukkha was known. I knew Dukkha. <laughs> you could go home and people ask you, what did you do? I knew Dukkha. <laughs> I opened to my own suffering. You know, it's a detox, right? Some of it is detox, just having sobbing meditation. It is just allowing all of those um, 
difficult emotions that we never wanted to encounter that have been impacting the way we see the world. It's been a filter over our perception, that rage and anger and that sense of self-pity and lack of agency that have totally influenced our perception and our thoughts and our view. You know, we need to let that go. There's more clarity when we can have stomping meditation and just saying, yeah, anger, I see you. You're there, I see you. You know, you were here for a reason. I'm going to feel you and let you go. And then, you know, it clears out the perception. That's one of the, um, that's one of the most important uh, tasks of mindfulness is to decondition our automatic way of seeing things. That's one of the most important tasks of mindfulness is to see things with beginner's mind and ask the question, really, what is going on here? And not have a a conceptual overlay based on rage and self-pity and total delusion. You know, it clears that stuff up. And then right intention or right thought is also part of the panya. The panya uh, maga, the panya force. And that is just pretty much keeping the precepts. I love the precepts. You know, having that something that you commit to on a daily basis. I'm going to try my hardest not to be Um, to kill anything or to have anything killed on my behalf. I'm going to try to uh, not engage in harmful sexual activity. I'm not going to take what is not given. I'm not going to cloud the mind in a way that makes me unheedful. And I'm going to be careful about what I say. I mean, it's pretty simple. And then, of course, every single day we probably don't live up to that aspiration and that intention, but we say, you know, we notice that, we see, and then we actually see the pain of that. And that waters the seeds of our good intentions over and over again. Just seeing when we don't live up to that. Because none of us do, you know. And just being open to seeing that over and over again. Sila, Samadhi, and Panya. How we take that into our daily life. So the internal conditions for the development of the path factors is Yoniso Manasikara which is just wise attention. Caring about that. And using all of the things that are hurtful to us. That's a practice that I've been doing recently. Actually, since I've started teaching the Dhamma, it's like whenever I get hurt, you know, somebody says or does something that really impacts me and causes pain for me, I actually like to really feel that pain and say, wow, do I want to be the cause of this in anybody else? 
you know, we can really feel that and have that water our intentions not to be the cause of that for anybody else. It's a really useful, a useful um, use of our pain. And sealant, samadhi, and panya are all related. You know, they're not separate factors. They're absolutely interrelated. This is what the Buddha says. This is moral virtue. This is concentration. This is wisdom. Concentration, when well cultivated with moral virtue, brings great fruit and great profit. Wisdom, when well cultivated with concentration, brings great fruit and great profit. The mind, when well cultivated with wisdom, becomes completely free from the mental influxes, from the defilements. That is to say, from the influx of lust, of becoming, and of false views, and the influx of ignorance. And who is doing this? Who is doing this all? Who sets the intention to walk the Eightfold Path, to strengthen sila, samadhi, and panya? Who does that? If it's all just forces in our mind, is it, you know, striving? Is it ego that sets that intention? So, Gil Fonstel has a nice saying about that. So how do we set an aspiration, a wholesome aspiration, to cultivate sila, samadhi, and panya? He says, if we want to base our lives on aspiration rather than craving, we have to give ourselves time to discover our deepest wishes. Aspiration often arises from a non-discursive part of the heart and mind. Chitta. Craving and clinging often are often tied to the discursive world of planning, thinking, and fantasy, while aspiration is associated with inner stillness and relaxation. Sometimes it is only during long, long contemplative periods that people discover what they want most to base their lives on. I think that's what people are right now. I think that's what I've heard is that I want to base my life on this. And that is a really wholesome aspiration that arises as part of the path. That is not, um, you know, part of discursive planning or wanting or thinking or fantasy. It's a deeper aspiration that emerges as part of the Eightfold Path, as part of the progress of insight, the path towards liberation. That aspiration emerges out of that. And if you're feeling that, it's important to really see that and value that. You know, it's a deeper, it's a deeper uh, wish for integrity and well-being. And it's incredibly beautiful. And you should love yourself for that. Even if you just have it for seconds, you should reflect on how good that is and how wholesome that is and how you have cultivated that in this week and in your life. Reflect on your goodness. 
reflect on that you have the qualities for a well-being that is based on something that actually has the potential to give well-being to yourself and others. Reflect on your goodness. It is also important to respect both ourselves and our aspirations. It is easy to dismiss both our aspirations and the search for them. Believing that we are not good enough, capable, or deserving can leave us feeling unfulfilled and regretful. In the world of aspirations, it is far better to try and fail than to never try. Buddhism recognizes many beautiful aspirations, including wishes of goodwill and kindness for others and the desire for happiness and other wholesome qualities of mind for ourselves. Central to the practice are the aspirations for liberation and for the alleviation of the suffering of others. This path doesn't require us to desire either of these. So we don't necessarily need to say, I need to get liberated. Both aspirations can flow through us without egotism or craving. They can seem so natural that they appear impersonal. Isn't that beautiful? That when the aspiration arises for awakening, that it's almost an impersonal desire. Just as water flows downhill, so the unimpeded heart flows to freedom and service. The healthy desire for freedom and compassion can flow like a mighty river that finds its rest in reaching the vast ocean. And the Eightfold Path is the, you know, it is the vehicle that crosses the floods. So I think we've all done some excellent work together here. I think we all should be really happy about that. Very wholesome. And it will contribute to our own happiness and to the happiness of the people that we love and to everyone everywhere. And reflecting on our goodness is part of that. So let's just sit, sit for a second and feel good about ourselves. <laughs> May we always know in which direction we're walking. May we transform suffering into wisdom and love. May all beings be free.
Are we having a nine o'clock? Or are we done for the night? Nine? Walking. Okay, we're walking for half an hour and then we're chanting at nine? 